episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Gramps Jeffrey. Gramps and I talk about I Don't Want to Turn Three, his children's book that he wrote because his grandchildren were visiting during COVID. And after observing them, he was inspired to write this children's book. And also we talk about a book that he wrote prior when he had another life, a life that dealt with business. And that is The Secrets of Retailing, How to Beat Walmart. We discuss not only humanity and children and how this is the greatest generation coming. We also talk about the fact that if you are running a small business, how do you succeed? And how do you get past the algorithm? So enjoy. Hi, Gramps. Jeffrey, how are you doing today? Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. You are welcome. You are very welcome. So your whole story is about writing, and I understand that feeling because I'm a writer myself. So you basically put your love of writing on hold. Yeah, you know, when I was younger, uh, I, I did the, when I was a junior in college, I took a 11-week backpack trip through Europe. You know, with my best friend. And, you know, we did all the great things that backpackers do. You know, we slept in youth hostels, rode trains, and all that kind of stuff. But I kept a journal. I kept a, a daily journal of everything that we did. And, uh, you know, when, when we got home and we read it, we said, wow. Well, yeah, because it was really about the people, the places, and it was just something. And, you know, at that time in my life, I said, you know, I think I want to grow up and be a writer. Well, you know, senior year of college came around and I uh, had to think about uh, how was I going to uh, pay for my life? And yeah. so I put writing on hold and I got into business. So I got into the uh, retail business and I got involved with a couple major retail chains. Uh, then I started my own uh, businesses and took one company public. Uh, and so I, uh, I gave up the idea of being a writer for many, many years. Um, but luckily, I was able to get back to it because uh, the company that I took public, uh, we became the uh, premier business-to-business -business site on the internet where we sold in case quantity to small businesses all around the world, shipped in all 50 states, around 40 foreign countries. Our customer base for the moms and the pops are surviving, thriving as the chains. So uh, as we were servicing and, and, and building this customer base, I was getting these calls from customers. How do I start a business? What do I need to do to be an entrepreneur? So I wrote this book called The Secrets of Retailing, How to Be Walmart. And it's a 15-chapter book. You know, it's right here, if you can see this. You know, it's a 15-chapter book on uh, how to actually open a business. So that, that got me back into writing. Uh, and, you know, and I proceeded, and it happened that... Uh, Arianna Huffington read the book and she asked me to become a contributor for the Huffington Post. So I've written over 100 articles for the Huffington Post on all kinds of subjects like entrepreneurship, small businesses. But because uh, half of our customers evolved to being nonprofits, I really got into writing a lot about the nonprofits, homeless and, uh, and schooling and, and, and all kinds of uh, uh, things that are involved in nonprofit organizations. So that's how I got back into it. And then finally, when I uh, decided that, you know, I'm uh, time to, to, to move on out of business, I started my writing career as a uh, children's book writer. Okay. And here's the thing. Now, you know, when you're looking back, there weren't all the avenues to be able to get published. 
as there are now. And as as I agree with you about Walmart, we have the other one, the other bastion of uh, authorship would be Amazon, and they don't always treat their authors very well. <laughs> but True. I won't go there too much because it's, it's the same article. The same argument is is for Spotify as well with musicians. So I mean, we all, if you're a creative person. You have more avenues now to pursue your passion, just not as many avenues to make as much revenue. Yeah, you know, and and I, I love Amazon now because they have both my books on their site. So how can you not like them? I, you know? I love it. I, I my books are on Amazon as well. The only thing I, I will say is like Kindle Unlimited, you know, you you get paid, you know, 0. 0.006 cents per page read if you're on Kindle Unlimited. And then here's the real kicker on that one. If a pirate site decides to pirate your book, Amazon can close your account because your book is somewhere else, even if you didn't put it there. So what you're saying is if you want to be an author, you can't really make money at it. Uh, it's got to be a passion. For the most part. I mean, like podcasting, like most, most creative projects. Yes, there might be that movie that hits it big and, and blows it out of the water. There's a book like Fifty Shades of Grey that hits it big and blows it out of the water. But for every Fifty Shades of Grey, how many other authors are out there hustling, trying to do their best and putting out their money for their editor, their cover designer and everything else and never going to see that money again? That's one thing. If you go on TikTok, there's a big thing about pirating books. Have you dealt with pirating people pirating your books? I mean, with a kid's book, I would assume that that's not such a big deal. Now, you know, when you think about a kid's book, it's 32 pages long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can read a kid's book in 15 to 20 minutes and you're right. done. Yeah. So I don't think there's that kind of a need for it. But um, you're right. It's how do you get your word out there? It's, it's, it's not easy. No. And even, even if you were to be signed with a traditional publisher, you're still having the same. I've, I've interviewed people that are traditionally published and they're like, I was only making a few cents more or a few cents less by being traditionally published. And I still had to do most of my own marketing. So writing a book has to be about passion. And that's what happened to me. You know, yeah. the, re the reason I wrote this book is, you know, is, is really because of uh, COVID-19, you know, uh, where we all were so isolated except for being with my family. And, uh, and it gave me a special time to kind of watch and, and observe how my grandkids acted. And I got to tell you what a trip that was. You know, I've got six grandkids and they all have different personalities. Oh, yeah. You know, one thing they do have in common is their sense of curiosity. Uh, you know, and how excited they get when they do accomplish something. Uh, so watching them year to year and how they interact with each other really is the basis of this book. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a reflection on uh, what was, how was I when I was three years old compared to how they are today. Well, I mean, you, as much as the generations have changed, too, I mean, technology has made us change. I mean, you're pretty sure you your generation, I'm, I'm Gen X, I'm pretty sure you're Gen X or a boomer. I happen to be a baby boomer. Okay. So we can still have this conversation because our generations, we could ride in the back of a pickup truck. It wouldn't be a big deal. We could do really reckless, stupid things and it wouldn't be a big deal. Now we have technology that is watching everything. You can't, you can't ride in the back of a pickup truck because you're going to get in trouble if you do that now. 
you know, as a baby boomer trying to understand how the world has evolved since I was three years old, you know, it was also part of my story. You know, my, my parents didn't have cell phones. No. Yeah, you know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have cable TV. They didn't have remotes. I was on my dad's road. He said, "Son, go change the channel." You know, mm-hmm. I was the remote back then. Mm-hmm. You know, so so their their definition of discipline is completely different than the definition of discipline today. Yeah, you know, so so are kids growing up today better than our generations? Well, I, I'll I'll let your listeners kind of answer that question. Um, how were they treated compared to how we're treating our kids today? Well. You can also reel back this, and I'm not even going to go with critical thinking. I'm just the normal things that we used to have to remember when we were growing up. We had to remember phone numbers. We had to remember multiple phone numbers. We had to remember addresses. We had we had to know things. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, all I have to do is say, hey, whatever, whatever phone platform or whatever I'm using, and it's going to look it up for me. I mean, if I ever had a point where I didn't know how to spell something and I would ask my mother, my mother now, I know the reason, real reason she did it. But back then she's like, go look it up in the dictionary. And 10 to 1, it was because she couldn't spell it to save her life anyway, but she was making, (laughs) and I'm like, how am I supposed to look it up in the dictionary? She's like, sound it out. And I would, and I'd find it. But now I don't even have to do that. All I have to do if I can't spell something says, hey, such and such. And it'll tell me. Well, you got to realize that technology is there to help us achieve our goals okay mm-hmm. and again this is the greatest generation we've ever had these one to ten year olds coming up mm-hmm. they're the first generation that is i mean they are the internet they grew they, that's all they know the internet the uh, uh iphones and how to do their ipads you know that's great that's so much makes them so much smarter than when i was growing up so much quicker but going back to what you just said about your mother you know we as adults your generation and my generation have got to step in there now to to round out what they're learning through the internet so that they become the great generation they're going to become. Yeah, and you know, since we're both authors, the, the, the thing that I'd like to make sure we do, and especially grandparents, especially the, the baby boomers, that, that they take the time to read books to these kids. Yeah, that's that's what we have to do. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why we should be reading books to kids. I mean, first of all, you know, it gives you a chance to really bond with a little kid. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six years old. You know, they're sitting on your lap. You got a book open up. It gives you a chance to really bond. You know, and you get to stand spend time together, which you may not have in today's crazy world as it is. You know, another reason we should be reading books to our kids is it supports listening skills. Now, you and I both know that as we get older, listening skills are the best skills we can have because the more we listen. The more we can communicate, the more we can sell. We can do all kinds of things. So we can, if we can feed in these kids the book reading, the listening and the book reading, I mean, it's really going to pay off for them as they grow up, as they mix with all the electronics that they're doing. You know, the, the cognitive and language development that you were talking about with your mother. You know, these words pop up in books. It gives us a chance. You got the kids sitting on your slap. You can actually explain words to them. You can tell them because they don't know all these words in the book. Uh, so it helps with the cognitive and with the, the language development you have with it. And then, you know, another reason is the attention span. You know, you've got these little kids, two, three, four, five years old, they're bouncing off the wall all day in your lap, 20 minutes. It's attention span. It gives them a chance to concentrate uh, and self-discipline skills. And that's what we have to add. And that's why reading can really add to what these little kids are doing, which are great with the Internet and their iPhones. But and I agree with you wholeheartedly. It also gets them unplugged for a certain amount of time. 
But the one thing, while technology is great, if there's someone worse than technology, I mean, I know for a fact for me, if I was at my grandmother's house or my aunt's house and I had one Barbie doll and that Barbie doll I was allowed to bring and I needed another dress because I wanted to change her clothes, I took a napkin, a paper napkin, paper towel, and I made a dress out of it because I had the skills and the mindset to be able to do that. But if we are, if the kids, okay, here's a prime example. What happens if the power goes out? Granted, for maybe six hours, eight hours, you have that phone. But what happens when that phone dies? What happens to those kids now that they don't know anything else but, oh, even the coloring book app on my phone works. Okay, no. What can they do that's tangible that is not so much the net or computers? And I mean, yes, they need it. But I mean, there's simple things that can happen. The power can go out. If God forbid we ever had an EMP go off, that would take down everything that has a computer chip in it. What are, what are they going to do? How can they function? So it's like, while they're learning this, they also need, they, the parents and the grandparents need to be able to teach them life skills like gardening and doing small tasks of creating. You bring up probably the best point we could be talking about now. And it's necessary for us to teach children how to think, not what to think, okay, but how to think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what you just brought up is all kinds of things that will teach them how to think, you know, and going back to, uh, again, because we're authors, I keep talking about books, but, you know, when you, when you think about, uh, you're sitting down reading your child this book, and again, you want to teach them how to think. And the smartest thing to do is, you know, have the kid pick out the books. All of us have 20 children's books laying around the house. You know, obviously, I want them to read my book, but of course, there's a hundred other great books out there that they can read. Um, so, so let the child pick out the book. And again, when you're talking about how do we teach them how to think, you know, before you even sit down, uh, you know, and start opening the book, you want to ask them, what do you think is going to happen in this book? Again, get these kids to think. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen when the electricity goes off? You know, it's the same kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you, when you're sitting there reading them, you want to talk to them about uh, who are these characters in this book? You know, what is the setting? Let them start to think about that. Can they relate to that? Does anything in this book sound familiar to you? You know, again, we want to teach them how to think. And that's the best time when they're two, three, four, five years old to just bring up these kinds of things, you know? And then when you're done reading, same thing you want to do when when you're at the dinner time, when you have them every day, every night and say, well, how was your day? You want to say, what was your very, very favorite part of this book? Why was it your favorite part of the book? Get them to think, you know, and it goes back to if we as adults can get them to think and on top of what they're learning, again, this is going to be the greatest generation. Right. I mean, the fact is we need, they need to learn critical thinking. They need to be able to answer questions. They can't just see something and go, okay, that's the gospel. It's, it's not necessarily always going to be that way. And they need to be able to analyze stuff and see what it is, whether it's true or false or in, in between. You're talking about thinking. Mm-hmm. There's this one question that if we would ask our children every single day, I think it would change the world. In other words, I think the question we should ask our children is, what did you do today that was nice to someone else? Okay, now, the first time that you ask that question to your kid, they're going to look at you and say, what are you talking about? You know, I, I, I took my cousin's toys. I, I pulled my cousin's doll's hair. You know, I did all kinds of things. I, I don't do things nice. 
but, but start having start thinking about what did you do today that was nice to someone else? You know, after the first couple, three days of asking a question, you know, by the end of the week, they're going to say, I want to impress mom and dad. I'm going to do something nice. So maybe they will share their trucks with their cousin. You know, maybe they will open the door for someone else. Maybe they will help an old lady walk across the street. Just something that we could uh, get to them to start thinking. But can you imagine if every family asked their kids, what did you do that was nice to someone else today? How that could change this, this world in the next 20, 30, 40 years? It would be amazing. It's much better than there was a case a while back that a kid, there was a school shooting and the parents got charged and the parent had told the kid, well, you can take the gun to school as long as you don't get caught. I'm okay with it. <laughs> what? Excuse me. So this is it. This, what you're describing would be utopia and so much better than the toxic BS of what that other parent said. Oh, you're right. We, we never need to lose sight that we are the role models of our children. Okay. If you're a mother and you're on your telephone all day long and you're texting all day long, I can guarantee you that that's what your child's going to do. You know, I, I can, uh, kids mimic us. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say a cuss word, I can <laughs> tell you that four times more that day, they're going to say that cuss word. Now, obviously, if, if you say a cuss word by mistake, what you should do is follow it with good things like bananas and dinosaurs and raspberries. So, you know, that they may lose sight of that, but, but they mimic us. We are the role models uh, and they will do what we do. So we as parents and grandparents have got to keep that in mind because they're so impressionable at these ages. I think. You know, speaking of, but let's go back to our generations. Our generations, we were taught, our parents were taught to be parents. There was a certain dividing line where our parents didn't necessarily always go out and have fun. That's kind of changed midway through my life. But for the <laughs> most part, that was the rule of thumb in the 60s and the 70s. And prior to that, that mom and dad were there. They had their parties and stuff, but mom and dad were parents. And you listened to mom and dad and you, this was the way it was. My parents divorced. So I was one of those first kids that had the divorced parents. So that all changed. Dad became the party guy. Mom did whatever. And I was less, I was a latchkey kid at one point. So that was a whole new experience. And not many people understood that. But now, now parents don't have to be parents. And I know that sounds really weird, but parents get to have a social life. Parents can go do this. Parents had, you know, mommy's day out. And, and how many times do you, it's such a big thing with mommy, mommy's wine glass. You know, we, we have that a lot. And granted, we've always had moms talking about some kind of medication or something. But it's like mommy's having wine parties and stuff is a big deal nowadays, at least before pre-COVID. But it, it's, it's interesting because it's like parents now don't so much focus only on the kids. They also focus on their own personal growth at the same time. Good, bad and different. Interesting that you bring that up because I'm thinking about discipline of when I was a kid to how I see my kids disciplining their kids. Now, when I was, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. Now, my parents were part of the generation that changed this world. You know, my parents and probably your grandparents were uh, part of the Depression. They had to live through the Depression. They were part of World War II. They saved democracy. You know? And so when they all came back in the 50s, you know, they were a very disciplined group. This was, I mean, they were very focused. 
on building a better world for all of us. And so they were very disciplined. So, you know, discipline when I was a kid, my brother Larry and I, if we ever got in trouble, you know, my mom would say, wait till your dad gets home. And, you know, he'd, he'd come home and he'd whip out his belt and he would chase us around the dining room table. You know, and, and so, you know, that was discipline back then. In fact, he had a uh, he had a fraternity paddle and he used that also on us. So one uh, one fall night, we lived up in Ohio. One fall night, there was a lot of leaves on the ground. And uh, so they weren't home. And my brother and I took his fraternity paddle and we buried it underneath the leaves. And then it, and then it snowed the next day. And so we went back that spring and the paddle had disappeared. To me, that was a miracle. It was like, wow. This is really the way it's bad. Maybe he's gonna, he'll change his mind. So we had that kind of discipline in the 50s and 60s. And then we, you know, we learned from that as a generation. And we didn't chase our kids around the dining room table too much. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we taught them. And now the discipline today, I, I love the way these parents do discipline today. I mean, they send the kid to time out. Yeah, you know, the, the kid doesn't like that because they got to sit in the corner all by themselves. And so that's a great way to do it. Um, but, yeah, it's evolved. You know, they're not paddling their kids like we did, like we were paddled. So is it a better way? I, I think so. In fact, I was uh, at the, my uh, three-year-old granddaughter Grace's birthday party a couple weeks ago in Austin, Texas. And she has a brother who's four and a half years old. And they were starting to argue about some trucks that she had gotten for her birthday party got these great local trucks and she looks at him and she says to him i need my space and she actually gets up walks over to one side of the sofa and sits down and he looks at her and he says you know i need my space too and he goes to the other side well i can tell you they didn't learn i need my space on television or on the internet their mother i'm sure got so frustrated from them one day and said i need my space and she walks away but that's a great way to discipline because now that's how they figure out how to uh, get along with each other. Well, and also it gives them a cooling off point before anything escalates. So that's, that's a, that's a benefit. You know, I mean, my, my dad was good about putting people in the corner and kneeling. That was where, what my punishment for my father was, was kneel in the corner, which my knees don't really like now. <laughs> um, but you know, you're talking about the paddle. I went to a Lutheran school in seventh and eighth grade. So this is the early eighties. I graduated in 1981 and there was a paddle in the in the principal's office. And I know people are like, that's school. Well, yeah, it was school. And yes, that paddle did get used. You know, I, schools in the, the early 80s still were, if it was a private school and a Lutheran school. And those kind of schools, they would still have corporal punishment. And they didn't think twice about it. You know, you're talking about you're talking about coming from a family that uh, there was divorce, so you you had a chance to live with each one and see how that works. You know, when I was growing up, I, I was our generation was pretty lucky because uh, you know most of our families kind of stayed where they were. You know, I grew up in a small town, and and my uncle lived up the street, my grandmother lived two blocks, and that was that was how we were raised. But in today's world, we're scattered all over the place. You know, using me for an example, I, I've got uh, you know four kids. Three of them have uh, grandkids, and so I got two grandkids here with me in Arizona. I've got two in Austin, Texas. I got two in Orlando, Florida, and you know we're far apart. And so, how do you keep in touch with them? You know, how do you how do you really become that family? Because it takes a village to raise a kid. 
you know, mom and dad can do it, but if you're coming from divorced parents, you need uncles and aunts, you need grandparents, you need friends, you know, you know, you need a lot of people to raise a little kid. So, so how are you going to raise these kids when they're so scattered away? I mean, little kids don't call you, two, three, four-year-olds, they're not going to pick up the phone and say, hey, Gramps, what you doing? You know, that's, that's not it. So you've got to come up with ways to, to keep in contact with these kids. You know, in, in my particular case, what we did, and I'm sure that your listeners have other ways that they can do it. But, you know, I was telling you that they were all here for six weeks for because of COVID. I had, so they had a chance to really spend some time with us. That's what my book's based on. It's a true story of watching them and how they interacted with each other. And, you know, so they got to really know our house. But for some reason, two, three, four, five-year-old kids, boys and girls, love dinosaurs. I can't tell you why, but they all do. Not only my kids, every one of their friends. That's their, their, that's their, their, their conversation breaking is dinosaurs. Um, you know, they can tell me these big, long names of dinosaurs. I mean, I only know small, medium, and large. Uh, but they know, they know the names, whether they eat meat. You know, they, they know everything about dinosaurs. So we figured that with these kids leaving our house, how are we going to keep in touch with them? So we came up with a program that every night, you know, we decided we'd have, we had six little dinosaurs in our house. We'd have these dinosaurs different places in the house. So for instance, you know, one night they were in the refrigerators eating blueberries. The next night they were at the sink washing dishes with grandma and they had soap on their noses. Next night they were playing the piano. The next night they were walking up steps. So we had them in 50 different nights inside the house and outside the house because the kids were familiar because they were here for a few weeks. Uh, so they could know. So what happened was we became part of their routine. So you know, they would take their baths, the mom and dad would read them a book, and then they would say to their mom and dad, what are the dinosaurs doing tonight? So they would call uh, grandma's iPhone so that we could do Facebook. And they said, where's Gramps? Where's Gramps? What are the dinosaurs doing tonight? So we had a chance to stay in touch with them and keep them with them and try to influence them. Uh, I just urge any of your listeners to come up ways so that you can influence these little kids. They need us. They need that village. They need all of us to, to, to make sure that all this great stuff they're learning on the Internet uh, is kind of rounded out with the things that we knew when we were growing up. Well, one thing, you know, you're talking about family and how the family unit, when my, my grandfather was already gone and I went down to New Orleans because that's where my family is from. I went down to New Orleans and basically my cousins had already cleaned out my grandmother's house. She was moving in with my dad. So there wasn't much left. However, there was this mirror that was left and this mirror used to be above our dining room, their dining room table. It was their living room slash dining room, but it was always there. And it always reminded me of family gatherings. And so I said, I want the mirror. She goes, why? I got that for free when I, I, I told the salesman when I bought this living room set that I wanted it for free and he gave it to me. Why do you want that? And I'm like, because it reminds me of when I was a kid and when everything was good. And I mean, we used to go over to our house when we would spend like a week over there, sometimes me and my cousin, sometimes me by myself, but I'd spend a week over there and we'd play Romeo at night while Carson was on and we'd drink Ovaltine. So, I mean, those were all memories that were reinforced. And the same thing you're describing here with the dinosaurs, it's something that's reinforced. And when they think of a dinosaur, as they get a little older, if you continue that pattern of Every once in a while, bringing up the dinosaur, they're going to remember that. And it has meaning. That mirror is in my bedroom and it's been in my house and it'll be in my next house when I move because it's part of who I am. It's part of the it's one of the small things of family that I can still have with me. You know, you bring up a great point is the memories that are created by grandparents. 
Yeah, hopefully there's some good. There's always some bad too, but there's a lot of good things that are created by grandparents. And so, you know, we have to remember that these kids are only young once. They're you know, they, they, 18 years go by real fast, and usually mm-hmm. the last few years they don't really care anyway. But uh, you know, we've got to be able to take advantage of uh, of these kids because the future is so unpredictable. I mean, you mentioned that your grandfather died. In our generation, you know, we've got people dying of COVID left and right, like never before, besides all the other things we die from. You know, uh, and so so we've got to, you know, the, 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 the people that are 65 and older, they're 15% of the population, but they're 75% of the COVID deaths. So, you know, we have got to take advantage of today. We can't wait till tomorrow. We've got to get involved with these kids' lives today. And so, you know, it's very important what you just talked about. Well, and if we if we don't teach them about history, if we don't teach them about things that happen, we're destined to repeat it. I mean, you know, COVID and the Spanish flu. Hello, the, the Great Depression and inflation's out of control right now. It's we're in a way we're kind of marching along the same pattern. And you have to make sure you're paying attention to the past so we don't repeat it. Well, and the other thing is because of COVID, you know, our kids are reading a lot less. Okay. I mean, and that's why we have to step in. Now, according to the United Nations uh, Educational Science Cultural Organization, I think we call it uh, UNESCO, 584 million children worldwide are now experiencing reading difficulties. That's a big number, 584 million. Well, what really makes it big is that the year before COVID, there were 460 million kids that were in this, this, this area of not being able to read. That's a 20% increase in kids not being able to read around the world because of COVID. You know, that wipes out two decades of any kind of educational process progress that was made. You know, the Stanford uh, Graduate School of Education just released a study saying that second and third graders' uh, reading fluency is now 30% behind of what it was before COVID. We, the village, we've got to jump in. We've got to get in reading. We've got to be teaching them. You know, and, and that's just what we have to do to make up for all these other issues that are happening. Well, and, you know, here in America, there's really no reason for our kids to be falling behind, but they do. I mean, I've interviewed people that live in South Africa and sometimes there's places still that don't have electricity, that they're still very much a third world country. And we don't realize how lucky we have it. But instead of taking the time to sit down with our kid to read, to help them through it, we'd rather do something else. Right. And, you know, there's plenty of pockets here in the U.S. that don't have great Internet. You know, right. I, I live uh, I live close to the many of the Indian reservations down here in Arizona and their Internet is terrible. And so, you know, again, we got to do the physical reading, just like when you're cut off from the Internet. What do you do? You got to sit down and read. Well, I think if we actually start looking at humanity as all across the board instead of the have and have nots, that we could actually make a big difference. It's kind of like, what, what have you done nice for, for somebody this week or today? The whole fact is if we actually look at everybody as a human being instead of what they have, we would treat people differently. If we looked at them as a human being with love and compassion and realize that everybody has a right to say something and be the way they are, but they're human no matter what. So I guess if there is a message on this podcast, you just hit it. Yeah. I mean, 
there's too many people that get wrapped up in social media and what's going on that I don't have enough. And I mean, I've been guilty of it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, yes, no, I've been guilty of it. All of us have. But we have to find a way to step back and go, you know what? They're no different than me. They really aren't. Because ultimately, we're all born and we all die. The journey <laughs> in between is the only thing that's different. And if you can really embrace on how you treat people and not think that somebody's better than you or less than you, then we level the playing field. And maybe, just maybe, as Rodney King said once, can't we all just get along? I agree. And, and the way to do that is to start teaching kids to, like you said, ask them that question. So what have you done for somebody? What's, what is something good that you've done today? You're right. Even if we did that to ourselves, let's let, let's not even talk about the kids. What you know? What happens if somebody asked you that question? And I'm not saying you personally. I'm just saying uh, generalization to the audience. I mean, can you actually answer that question and say, "Oh, well, I've done something to help somebody today." And did you do that? Did you do that thing without expecting anything in return? That's another key point here. Because if you did something to help somebody and you were expecting something in return, then did you really do it out of the kindness of your heart? Yeah, we should all be dancing like no one's watching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I taught, I have, I did, I had a guest on the podcast who he purchased a meal and he, he, we talked about this whole thing because he wanted to do a documentary on the people that were homeless and why they were homeless. And he would ask the person why, what their favorite meal was. And based on what their favorite meal was, he would go buy it. It didn't matter what it was. And then he would sit down and talk to them and ask them their story and how they got there and some of their greatest moments in their life while they enjoyed the food. But he wanted to get to know them. He wanted to humanize them. And that's the thing. I think we look at somebody that's on the street and homeless as, oh, look at the dreg of society. How many people can be homeless for one small thing about being sick? You know? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the way that the book ends, I don't want to turn three, is the kids give all of their toys and their things that they got and took from each other to the homeless downtown, nice. to the homeless kids downtown. That's how the book ends. Nice. Uh, and it comes from, again, it's a true story. It came from an idea of Olivia, who was eight at the time. And, you know, she looked at her cousins and said, we need to give this to the homeless. And so if we get every kid thinking like that, mm-hmm. I mean, it really will change our world. Yeah. I, I think it's time that we start looking at our, like I said, if we go back to looking at people as humanity, if we, you know, I mean, I know while we're taping this, there's a war going on and it's, it's awful and I don't even want to go there, but why do we need, a, you know, once again, why do we need a war? Oh, because you want something. Why can't you just let these people live in peace? No, you want to do this. Why? You know, I mean, it always boggles my mind. I always go back to Wall Street movie with Gordon Gecko saying greed is good. Whether it's greed for land or money, it's it's senseless because ultimately what happens is you're not the one that's fighting. You are ultimately just sending people to their death. So let's leave this with a thought. What did you do today 
that was nice to someone else. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. And I know that's not exactly what you came on the podcast to talk about, but sometimes that's the way it happens. So do you have anything you want to add to the show? Oh, I want everybody to buy my book. You can go to Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble, about a hundred other sites. It's called I Don't Want to Turn Three or come to my site, scrampsjeffrey.com. Or if any of your listeners want to continue this conversation, please email me at gramsjeffrey at gmail.com. Well, if you have more to say about the conversation, please do. We still have time. So, no, I, I, think, I think we've made a lot of good points here. So I do have one question about your original book. Why did you, do you still see that Walmart has taken over small businesses? Walmart, yes. What, what you got to realize is in the 70s and 80s, you know, there were thousands of manufacturers here in the U.S. that Walmart was their biggest customer. Okay? So they, they, over 50% of the, many of these manufacturers' business was going into Walmart. And as Walmart grew and got smarter, they said, well, I can knock all these things off and make them myself in China for half the price. So this country is littered with thousands and thousands of manufacturers that put all of their eggs into one basket, saying that Walmart's going to take me to where I need to go. And they got dropped by Walmart. So that's the first part of this country that is littered by uh, you know, what happened with Walmart. Is these manufacturers who were starting to supply them. Then second is the small town America. If you think about it, uh, how many places has Walmart moved into where all of the mom and pop stores are now disappeared? They're gone. It's a whole different world. Think about how many chain stores are now in small town America instead of the small town businesses. Now there's still, well, let's not lose sight. There's 30 million independent businesses here in the U.S. There's 30 million independent businesses. You know, there's, uh, there's about 250,000 big companies. Okay, that's a big number. It's a big number, but obviously most people work for the big companies. But you still have 30 million. Um, now, the COVID caused about 2% of uh, independent businesses to go out of business as a whole. Um, but they're coming back because there's other ways to become a business. You don't have to open up a brick-and-mortar store today to become a business. You can become online. Now, think about this, you know, and this is one of the great things about Amazon. You know, if you have an idea and you have a product, uh, you don't need to open up a brick-and-mortar store to start to sell it. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Walmart. You can go to uh, eBay. You can go to Etsy. There's a there's hundred different places where you can sell your products. So that is creating a whole new level of entrepreneurs that are getting into business and it's a better level because they don't have to tie up all their dollars in inventory. They don't have to tie up all their dollars in, in people. They don't have to tie up all their dollars in store locations. So it's creating a whole new class of entrepreneurs to replace all those that were you know, in small town of America. Now, it also creates more opportunities for small town America because now, whereas if you had a gift shop in small town America, your customer was just in your area. Now you can take your same gifts, put them online, and you have now a customer base not only uh, down Main Street, but around the world. 
So the internet has created such an opportunity for small businesses to survive that uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not worried about small businesses anymore. I know that they can do a combination of having a brick and mortar store and making up some volume online. I can tell you firsthand that the small town story is true because I moved to the small town in 2012 and it was a former, there's a huge plant here, Motorola that they built in, I think 2008 and by no, actually take the back 1998 and by 2002, it was shut down. So this honking bastion that was supposed to make all these promises to the town and the infrastructure and everything kind of fell to waste. We have Walmart here and Walmart had already moved into the building that it is now. We had a grocery store when I first moved in. We don't have a grocery store anymore. We have Walmart. We have a couple little mom and pop Mexican markets here, but Walmart's the main grocery store. Our town has had some dead businesses. We had a couple of restaurants. Oh, wait, now we put a Burger King in. Oh, we're going to put a Starbucks and something else in a combo restaurant coming in. So we're, we're seeing this. However, COVID, which we had a 24-hour McDonald's because we're on a main drag, they can't find people to work at. So it's actually closed at 8 o'clock at one, one point. And 10 o'clock at another point. Now they're asking for people for $16 an hour to come work at McDonald's. We have three or four car dealerships here. This is a town of 9,000 people, but we have three or four car dealerships. You know, the, the thing is, and the Walmart is not a giant Walmart either. It's a smaller Walmart. But what you say about this is true. And so the Motorola building has been sold three times, twice to shady investors, and it's been sold again to another investment firm. The power has been cut off since 2018. And we live in a cold climate. So that means water pipes could have burst. But now apparently the federal government sold the building to somebody else and hopefully it gets used. Otherwise, it's an albatross. And Walmart is the anchor store of our town. So have any of your friends started online businesses? I've had an online business. I had a brick and mortar business and I closed it because of COVID. And, you know, the thing about it is people are like, well, we can do it on Etsy. The thing is Etsy keeps raising their fees and they're charging fees on shipping when they're not even, you know, so it's like, there's certain parameters that I know for people that have started online businesses that they're like, they get turned off because there's so many fees involved that it's not worth their time. But the customer base that you can find mm-hmm. online, when you think, you know, there's 330 million people here in the U.S., you know, all you need is 1%. 1%, but here's here, the, the biggest problem with that is you're always chasing an algorithm. You're always chasing an algorithm on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram. If you're trying to sell something, you're always trying to go up against that algorithm that is constantly changing. So what should Americans do? Just uh, go hide in the no, corner? No, no. You're the, you're the business guy here. Tell me. Tell me. You mean, I mean, I'm giving you feedback here. Tell me what, what would you suggest? Because if the algorithm is something that you're always fighting against, how do you succeed? There are three different reasons why businesses fail. 
50, 50% of businesses fail uh, in their first five years. Okay. So that's just part of life. That's just mm-hmm. it's historically the way it is. The first reason, the main reason is you don't have enough capital. So, you know, you, when you, when you decide you want to open up a business, whether it's a brick and mortar or online, you've got to assume you're not going to get any sales for six months. You just got to, it's got to be that way because it takes a while to get developed. So you have to, before you even open up a business, you have got to uh, make sure that you've got enough cash, either from yourself or your parents or your relatives or your friends, you know, to last six months without getting a single sale in. So that's one reason that causes uh, businesses to fail. A second reason is you don't hire the right people. You know, you as an individual are usually very passionate about your business. Mm -hmm. That's why you got into it. That's why you can't sleep at night. That's why you want to go out and make things happen because you're very passionate about it. But all of us have limitations, you know, you know, taking me, for example, you know, I love marketing and sales, but I can't draw a straight line. So I can't do any kind of graphics. I've got to find somebody who can do graphics. If I try to do it myself, I'll just be sitting in a corner frustrated for a couple of days. Yeah. I mean, I love the internet. I was part of the uh, original people who got onto the internet, but I can't program. I've got to find somebody who can actually do the programming. But so you've got to make sure you, you take advantage and find people or find services that complement what your strengths are, because you want to make sure that what you do is you're concentrating on 100% of the time and you're not wasting days trying to do things that frustrate you. you know? And so that's the second reason that the businesses fail. The uh, third reason that businesses fail is you don't have the right product. You haven't done your research. You don't, you don't, you're trying to sell something that nobody wants, you know, you know trying to sell ice in, in Minnesota. You just, you just, you don't want to, you got to be very careful. You got to pick out the right product and you got to find the right niche, niche. You know, there are, there are certain products you just can't compete with because they're just so overwhelmed, but there, there are hundreds and hundreds of niches of products in this world, you know, that people are not paying much attention to. It could be anything, you know, from uh, petite sizes to plus sizes, all kinds of things in between, you know, and that's what you got to do. So if you can overcome those three issues that cause half of American businesses to fail, then you do have a chance. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, like I said, I'm just telling you that I know so that's one of the biggest complaints I hear from people is I'm always trying to compete against an algorithm. So that's why I mentioned it. Yeah. yeah make your own algorithm. If only it were that simple. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I do thank you for coming on the show and talking about your books and your, your, the links where they can buy the books will be on the show notes so they can check it out there. So thank you again for coming on. Great. Thanks for inviting me. Bye-bye. Bye. So if I can ask you guys to take one thing away from this podcast, it would be that when you start looking at life, ask yourself, not only your kids, but ask yourself, what good can I have I done today? What good did I do? And I didn't expect anything in return. And that, if you start doing that every day, you're going to find how much, how much reward there is in giving something to somebody because you're not expecting anything in return. Your heart is there. You're putting it out there. 
And I'm not saying be naive. I'm just saying, what does the, what's the cost of doing something nice for somebody? What is the cost? There is no cost. There's a reward in it for yourself to know that somebody else benefited from something you did. And like I said, this is just for you to get a reward in your heart. It's not about you getting reward anywhere else, but putting a smile on somebody else's face. Oh, that can, that can give you so much more than a dollar bill. And yes, I know money is, yeah, I know don't even, but the fact is, as I said in the podcast, we're all human and humanity is important. And then that's where at the end of the day, we really need to look at the bigger picture because we all live and we all die and we all have this journey to go through. Wouldn't it be much easier if we all got along or tried to get along just a little bit more? So on that note, yeah, if you have a question, comment, or concern, please drop me a line at Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at better2podcast.com. That's Donna at better2podcast.com. You want to catch up on the episodes, you can find them at better2podcast.com, as well as our social links. They're there as well. Uh, the sound is done by Rich Sai of Third Ear Audio, as always. And if you want to check out my books or get a reading from me, you can do so by going to dmneedham.com. I have two books out currently, My Love is Worth Waiting For and My Days with the Dark Views. So check them out if you want. And on that note, I hope you have a wonderful day, evening, weekend, whenever you're listening. And I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.